Some of it, you probably met some of them up here, but this is Lainey. She's 12. It's pretty amazing. And that's her brother, Leaf. He's, uh, I said 10 in the first service, I was wrong. He's 15, so. And uh, this is Ryan. Ryan's been leading the youth team on several occasions, and so I just think it's really neat to have some kids up there at that age to be rocking it. And um, their dad and mom are in the back there. I'm going to put, uh, <laughs> I have a purpose to doing this other than just embarrassing Angie, because I know right now she hates me. Angie, would you stand for everyone to see just what it is? <laughs> Um, I will ask Mike to stand, though. Mike doesn't care. Mike, would you stand for me? And there's a reason. That, that's that's uh, Lainey and, and Leaf's dad. And um, Mike it, ha- took over our missions uh, committee. And so I just, for those of you who haven't seen him, he, um, he facilitates uh, all of our mission stuff and, and global stuff. And, and we have a board and a team that helps with all of that. And so he, uh, he's been tied in with that. So if you have any questions, um, you don't have to email me or ask me. You can ask Mike. Let's try to share the love of responsibility. Um, if I haven't met you this morning, my name's Jesse, and I get to preach the word here on Sunday mornings. Uh, if you desire to uh, follow along with us and you don't have a Bible, raise your hand, and uh, good old Bejo here would love to give you a Bible. Uh, the book of Jonah, I think it's on page 774, if I'm not mistaken, in that Bible. If you have a different Bible, it's, don't go to 774. It's probably a different book. Um, but uh, we're going to be in the book of Jonah, like I said, for the summer. And um, before we get in, I just want to share a couple of things. I, 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 um, I do a thing called uh, ministry moment and a missions moment, and I just want to share a little uh, moment of ministry with you. And the purpose of the ministry moment is just to highlight for you uh, some things that are going on in the church, and I get to hear of things that sometimes you don't get to hear that, that are just really neat, and, uh, and God is in them. One of them is... Um, we got a gal who got saved here a few years ago. Her name's Pam McCarthy, and she became a Christian. Uh, I don't know, it's probably been four or five, six years now, something like that. And she's just really been growing in her faith, and it's been really neat to see. And she had an issue with her vehicle this week, and she took it down to a local uh, shop to get it worked on. And the guy at the counter was dealing with her, and he was just super polite. She was telling me, this guy, I've never met him before. He's just a really nice guy, uh, just a sweetheart. And he was so nice to me that when I left, I turned around and I had to come back and I asked him, are you a Christian? And he said, yeah, I'm a Christian. It was Marty Pearson. And some of you may or may not know who Marty is, but Marty comes to church here. And so they've been coming to church here together for several years and have never met each other. And something about him showed her this guy is a Christian. I just think that's really neat because it just proves to us that when you're in a relationship with Jesus Christ, there's something different about you. And especially if you're a Christian, you can almost feel it, right? And you, you know that moment when you're nervous to ask, are you a Christian? And they're like, I'm an atheist. <laughs> oh, well, you're the nicest atheist I've ever met. Um, and then another one, uh, the first week of Jonah, as you know, we, we talked about how Jonah um, is an example of bringing the gospel or bringing salvation to people who aren't like us or who are different than us. And I shared a story uh, about hanging out with my brother-in-law because he's a tattoo artist and all of his tattoo artist friends with tattoos on their faces and stuff like that. And I said, I, I want to see more of those kind of people come to Jesus. And uh, one of the, our younger gals came up to me after the service and she said, if you want me to get a face tattoo, I will. <laughs> I said, that's not what I meant. Um, uh, um, and then, uh, but... Um, some of you know Amber and Andy Finch, uh, another just really great story. Amber 
Amber has been desiring and wanting to grow and sharing her faith for a long time, and she's always felt pretty uh, insecure in that. And and no fault of her own, I think that she's well equipped and and she can do it. But she's just felt that insecurity, and so she's just she shared with me that the the last several weeks that God's just been wanting, you know, pressing in on her to share her faith, and and she has a friend that she's been sharing her faith with. She's been nervous to do it, but she's kind of ramped it up recently. And she was telling me that she has the words F-U tattooed on her knuckles. Uh, and it, the F-U doesn't stand for fun, you, or anything like that. You can put it two and two together. Um, and she said that, uh, you know, she's basically this gal's an atheist. And, and, um, and so Amber has been talking to her, and she, she texted me after last service because she had a chance to meet with her. And she said, she's, uh, she's going to come to church with me. And, um, and so she said, pick a good Sunday. No, no pressure. Um, we are going to ramp up in Jonah and cover more than three verses this morning. Uh, we've only covered the first three the last couple weeks. And um, just want to say happy Father's Day to all of you who are fathers, and uh, thank you for being a dad. Uh, and uh, ultimately, we know that God uh, is the ultimate father. And that we can't always look to our earthly father to be the best example of what it means to have a good dad. Uh, my biological father is spending his second stint in prison, and so he has not always been the greatest example uh, as fatherhood in my life, but God always has. And so we can't look to our earthly fathers as the example of the perfect father. We look to the son in Jesus Christ as that, and we'll tie some of that in this morning. But we have a tradition on Sunday mornings to honor the reading of God's Word. It's important to us. And so if you're able to this morning, I want to encourage you to stand with me as we honor God's Word and we read chapter 1, from chapter 1, the book of Jonah. Now, I'm starting in verse 1. I'm going to just cover it even though we've been through it. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city. And call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with him to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each one cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give you, perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is it that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you, that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous, he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, 
The men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it has pleased you. So they picked up Jonah, hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. This is the word of the Lord, and everyone said, Amen. You may be seated. Um, the title of the message this morning is, But the Lord. When God's sovereignty meets defiance. If you notice, as we read verses 1 through 3, the word of God comes to the prophet Jonah. Let's take note for a moment as review that Jonah was a man who was trained and ordained to work for the Lord. Jonah, at one time prior to this, prophesied for Jeroboam, the king of Israel, an evil king. He prophesied that Israel would expand, that it would grow. It was actually a great time of growth and prosperity for Israel, though their king was a wicked king. And at that time, Jonah was probably a teenager. But nonetheless, he was zealous for the Lord. He sat in God's presence. He heard the word of God come, and then he proclaimed that word to others in hope, in hopes that people would respond to that. He was ordained. He was trained. The word of God comes to him, and it goes to a people group that Jonah simply does not want to have anything to do with, in part because the Assyrians, who were polytheistic, henotheistic at best, meaning that they worshipped gods of different areas. Many gods, not one god, but many gods, and that they believed in gods that oversaw a particular group or a particular area. So there was a, a, the god of the, the mountains, the god of the valleys, the god of the sea, the god of the heavens, and what have you. In part, it is believed that Jonah did not want to proclaim the word of God to the Assyrians because they would then repent, come to the saving knowledge of God, and then God would then use the Assyrians to punish Israel, who though in their prosperity were not actually worshiping God. There's a part here where we, we have to see that, that Jonah, in part, is, is believing in his own mind that he loves God's people more than God does. There's a takeaway for us this morning there. Be very careful. Be very careful to think that you're more compassionate than God. You ever been in that place where you have wondered why God would do things a certain way? You've questioned in a circumstance why God performs uh, in his uh, sa saving knowledge. And you ever asked the question, why that person? Why that person? You may be sitting next to him. I can't believe this guy came to know God. All of us have come to a place in God's sovereignty where we've questioned and wondered why has God done a certain thing? And so we read that because of this, because of many other reasons as well, that Jonah arises and he goes in the opposite direction that God calls him to. And so we see here the word of God comes and the language that is used, I believe it's in verse 3, but Jonah, but Jonah. But then we see the ultimate of all ultimates in verse 4, but the Lord. But the Lord always trumps but whatever you decide to do. You see, Jonah, in part, 
We've, we've said it in the previous weeks. The, the, the overarching theme of Jonah may be called that salvation belongs to the Lord, that, that God brings salvation to those that he wants. But another way to look at it is that, he, that Jonah ultimately, if you, if you will, is the overarching theme of the entire Bible. You run and God chases you. And so, but Jonah runs, but the Lord comes. See, here, here's the reality. God cares enough to intervene in your life to bring you to salvation. Psalm 107, verse 25, says about God, and it's funny as I read this to you, take note, it almost sounds like he's speaking about Jonah. For God commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven, and they went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. See, God commands the storm. He's ordained it for Jonah for a purpose. An old pastor I used to read back in the day, John Corson, he, he says this about the storms of life. Sometimes God sends storms of severity in order to bring his children into port safely. Such was Jonah's case. This storm was not God's punishment of Jonah, but he showed patience with Jonah. You see, had Jonah listened, though the howling wind of the storm, he could have heard God's voice saying, I'm not going to let you go, Jonah. I love you too much. So blow, wind, blow. Not every storm, however, is the result of rebellion. Jesus sent his disciples into storms on more than one occasion, not because they were sinning, but because they had need of strengthening, not to destroy them, but to develop them. But in this case, Jonah is in rebellion. I want you to note something. We'll, we'll dive deeper into it here in a few moments. But you have a steady descent of Jonah in this book. Jonah was at one time, again to repeat myself, an ordained and trained prophet of God. He sat in the presence of God. He moves from sitting in God's presence to then into a place of rebellion, running from God's presence. A man of God who once walked with him, a man of God who once heard God's voice, now running in the opposite direction, 2,500 miles away. He's running. Jonah was learning here in this moment, though, as Hebrews 10.31 reads, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He was learning that that to run from God is an impossibility. At one time again, Jonah from Psalm 1611, it reads like this, that Jonah was forsaking what Psalm 1611 reads, which which is this, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of, who knows the passage? Joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Jonah sat in the presence of God, had the joy of God. And now instead he's trading it for what Jeremiah 23, 19 reads. Behold the storm of the Lord. His wrath has gone forth, a whirling tempest that will burst upon the head of the wicked. Jonah has traded his joy for now a wrathful experience on this boat. You see, here's another object lesson for us. When we go our own way, when we run from God, we never make the destination, but we always pay a full price. The other side to that, though, is Christians. For those of us who have this relationship with Jesus, we learn that when we go God's way, when we're obedient with God, when we follow his words, we always make the destination, and God pays the full price of the fare. 2,500 miles away, 
to Tarshish. He doesn't make it there. Eternity is farther away than Tarshish. Don't know if you know that or not. God is farther away than, than we could ever think or imagine, and Jesus pays the fare for us to reach our destination with him. At one time, Jonah had within his character, part of his identity was a success in ministry. Part of his identity was to uh, be obedient. It was shaped. His identity was shaped by, by being obedient to God. His identity was shaped by being in God's presence. And Sinclair Ferguson says, now with those two stable elements gone, Jonah appears as a man who is spiritually all at sea. He's lost all his moorings and drifted out into the dangerous waters, backsliding from God. Hebrews uses the language that is seaworthy from chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must pay close attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away. Jonah had forgotten for some reason or another what it was like to sit in the presence of God, to be in, in his, uh, his voice, in, in earshot of his voice, and now he has drifted away. This is why Hebrews tells us as Christians we need to pay attention. If you remember in the last few weeks, we've shared that Jonah is a mirror. We are all Jonah. I shared with my community group this week, and, and I asked them, what is the theme of Jonah? And several people said, we're all Jonah. All of us are Jonah. It's a mirror for us to look at and realize that all of us are susceptible to falling in the same path as Jonah. Now, there's something that can be lost here. A steady descent of Jonah Eventually, we'll get to the place where not only does he rebel, he gets to a place where he's going to the very depths of the sea, to the place that is called Shoal, the depths of Shoal itself. He, he indeed is going downward, but there is a contrast within the text, an ascent as well. It's an ironic ascent because it comes from the mariners themselves. It comes from those on the boat. Look at chapter 1, verse 5. As this wind comes, it's a mighty tempest on the sea. It's so mighty that the ship is about to break up. And in verse 5, it says, the mariners were what? Afraid. Anybody ever been on an airplane? Anybody afraid of flying? I, I wish I actually, man, if I would have thought of it. I have a video of my, uh, my sister, who was one of, the, one of the first times, one of the only times she's been on an airplane, and I, I put it on the... Instagram, I videotaped it because she couldn't see me videotaping it. You want to know why? <laughs> now, one thing, I, I don't totally feel completely comfortable flying. It's not a horrible experience for me, but, you know, when you come into the Reno Tahoe Airport, one thing's for sure, you usually have turbulence almost every single time. And one time, a few years back, I went to, um, I went to Spain for a missions trip and I went with Randy Hitchcock. And some of you might know Randy Hitchcock, who's part of our church, used to fly airplanes. He's a pilot, which uh, just for someone who's not super comfortable with planes, flying with a pilot isn't necessarily the best thing to do, as the pilot is sharing with you all of the things the plane should not be doing. <laughs> I remember him sharing with me that, that taking out of the Reno National Tahoe Airport, I hate to share this for those of you who fly out of that airport, he said the way we take off out of there to, to mine the buildings, to avoid the buildings, is not the safest place to take off. As we're climbing more rapidly, as he says, we shouldn't be climbing this fast. Thank you, Randy. <laughs> One thing I've learned in my trips on airplanes, though, is there's no need to worry if you're looking at other passengers who are panicking, that's, that's not the, the basis of trying to figure out whether the plane is going down or not. The person you need to look to is the stewardess. 
How are they responding? Because if they look fearful, now you, you should be fearful. If they're running, why? Well, likewise, the same thing with this boat. It's one thing for the passengers of the boat to be panicked and to be fearful. It's quite another thing for these mariners who, who indeed were skilled sailors. For them to be afraid is a big deal. They're frightened. They're scared. They know the sea. We're told by looking at the text, if you look carefully enough, you can realize it's such a a great tempest. It's so radical that not only is the boat falling apart, they indeed start to pray out to every single one of their gods. They have attributed this storm to be so radical, so hard, so gnarly, that they are attributing it to some other deity, to a god. This, This is being caused by a god. This is how radical this storm is. So in their polytheistic view, these men respond to what we can call an ignorant fear. They don't know why they should be afraid. They don't know who's caused it, rather, but they know that this is a radical kind of storm. So they each call out in their polytheism to to their own God. Spreading it out, if you will, right? It's kind of a shotgun blast. You pray to your God. Maybe the God of Buddha will help us here. And Joseph Smith might help us. And who cares who it is? Just cry out to him and get this thing to stop. And they act upon their fear with words. Notice that every single human being, whether they're an atheist or not, during hard times, people pray. During a storm, during tribulation, during difficulty, people cry out. People are open to pray. The most atheistic people will find themselves asking for a pastor to pray for them in the toughest of moments. The strength of the storm is so radical that they also start to throw out probably one of their greatest gods, their god of financial security. As they start to go into the boat to lighten the ship, they start throwing the cargo overboard. The cargo for them is their livelihood. It's their money, which shows us that the materialistic god of the world can only take you so far in your distraction and in your distress. It simply cannot satisfy you. They have an ignorant fear that is causing them to respond. One of the passages in Luke reads like this, that Jesus, he says to them, take care, be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. There's one thing every single one of us leaves behind when we die, and that's all of our stuff. And yet we still pay an exorbitant amount of money to store stuff that we haven't seen in years. I find myself wondering what's in my... Under, I have a little area under my stairs. I have stored a few things. I think I haven't seen them in years. What am I doing? Yet we do it. We have now, as a contrast to this, We have this great fear of the sailors. They have attributed the storm to a a god of some sort. They start to pray. They start to throw things overboard. And then we see Jonah. What is he doing? He's sleeping. He's asleep. Jonah has moved. If you're following the descent of Jonah, he has moved from ordained to trained to active disobedience to now a place where he is at peace with his disobedience. Have you ever seen that in your own life, in your own disobedience? 
At one moment, you have loved God. At one moment, you're in the presence of God. And the next moment, for some reason, you're running from God because the call is too hard for you. And then after fighting that battle, you get to a place where you're completely at peace. Jonah is asleep. He's fast asleep. It's the same word that's used when God put Adam asleep. It's a surgical kind of sleep, a hypnotic kind of sleep. The storm is raging. The boat, we're told, is falling apart. And Jonah, he's asleep. Active disobedience to a peaceful kind of disobedience. Let's take note of something else here. The sailors who are pagans pray. And we see Jonah who serves Yahweh. There's no prayer. Arise, you sleeper, what do you mean? And what a crazy thing. What a, what a very interesting coincidence when we realize that, that God's sovereignty meets our defiance and our disobedience. It's an amazing contrast here because the, the sailors come down or the captain comes down. He finds Jonah. They probably found him because they're looking for more cargo to throw overboard. And they come down and they see him. And what does the captain say to him? Arise and call out. Did you catch it? What does God tell Jonah to do in the first three verses? Arise and call out. Can you imagine Jonah's surprise, his shock, his horror, quite possibly? I'm running from God. I'm at peace. God can't get me anymore. I'm okay. I'm, I'm moving in the opposite direction. And then all of a sudden to be awoken with, with the same exact words that God has spoken to him earlier. Arise. Call out. Jonah surely is thinking in his mind at this moment, I can run from God, but I definitely cannot hide. Notice how he doesn't pray, though? Can you, just for a moment, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you were somebody who has come into the intimate relationship with Jesus Christ, could you not also share the same likeness here that when you are in disobedience with God, that that disobedience will lead to a lack of prayer? It will kill your prayer life. It'll kill your intimacy with God. It doesn't mean that God removes himself from you, but it does mean that you become less aware, less cognizant of the reality that, that Jesus wants to hear from you. He wants to sit with you. He wants to speak with you. It'll, it'll murder your prayer life. Can I just ask that question? What is it in your life that may be hindering you from hearing from God, speaking with God, sitting with God? His prayer life is null. And he justifies his actions. He has, he has what we might say, a real peace about it. I'm running from God. I have a real peace about it. I'm asleep. Have you ever spoken with someone who's a Christian and, and, and asked them why it is that they're living life a particular way that is anti-biblical, and they say something along those lines? I feel okay about it. I heard one pastor say this week as I was listening to different messages as I typically do near the end of my study time, and he said, where in the world did we get that as part of our theology? Oh, I have a peace about it. If you're a person of faith, is it not true? Is it not a reality that sometimes God will call you to do things that are not filled with peace but are actually very, very radical? Do you think, you think Jonah had peace to go to Nineveh? Are you going to have peace to share the gospel with friends and family? Are you going to have peace to, to dig into your pocketbook and give more to the Lord? I had someone this week say, he said to me, I probably shouldn't say this this morning, but he said, I sneak in a little... I sneak a little extra into the offering box. Don't tell my wife. 
I didn't know what to say. Keep being obedient to the Lord, brother. But keep being disobedient to your wife. That's an interesting dilemma. God's going to call us to do things that are uncomfortable, that are, that, are, that are not going to necessarily lead to what we call a peace. Jesus says that he came to bring peace to us, but not the peace the world gives, a different kind of peace. A peace that is filled with radical faith. And therefore, we must indeed be careful, ever watchful, to mortify the sin in our life. As John Owen says, John Owen says, do you mortify? He's, he's asking the question, do you, do you look at your life and see what kind of sin you might have in your life? Do you make it your daily work? Do you? Be always at it, he says, while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Jonah, at some point in his relationship with God, forgot this reality that the life of the believer, as Luther says, is the life of repentance. Repentance is not a bad word. It's a good word, isn't it, church? Everyone just stick with me here and go, yep, yep, yep. Make me feel good about being your pastor, okay? Because repentance is to turn and run from sin and run into God's love. Every opportunity of repentance is an opportunity to turn from that which is not being in God's presence and to enter into God's presence. I would dare say that repentance is a key that unlocks a door to sitting with God and being with God. Repentance isn't just a mourning, ugly, hard thing. It's an opportunity to step into the great love of God again. And we get to do that every day. Has anyone ever gone a day without sin? Careful how you answer. Therefore, every day needs repentance. And then we have this interesting deal that happens in verse 6. So the captain came to him, said, What do you mean, arise, O sleeper, call out to your God? He calls him to pray. We see no no prayer from Jonah. Perhaps your God will give thought to us. And then in verse 7, And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots. The lots were a kind of dice, kind of like a game of dice. And they would roll these Lots to see who it would fall upon, and of course, it falls upon Jonah. Jonah has won the lottery. Jonah wins. Isn't it interesting to note here, though, that, that the Proverbs tells us in 1633, chapter 16, verse 33, the lot, right, the dice is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Jonah, you can't run from me. Jonah, I'm going to stack the deck against you. You lose. See, God won't let Jonah go. God's going to use the situation to bring him back to himself. And then on the heels of this, the lot falls on Jonah. All of the mariners notice that this this tempest, this storm is caused by this one man. And you can almost see them stumbling upon each other to find out, who are you? And there's five five different questions. As it fell upon Jonah, on who account has this evil has come upon us? What is your occupation? What do you do for a living? Where do you come from? What is your country? What kind of people are you? Can you hear it? They're... We, we, we let you pay the fare to get on the boat. We didn't know who you are. You're on the boat. Now tell us, why in the world is this happening? And then Jonah's descent becomes even more radical. He comes to this place, and he tells them, I am a Hebrew. Echoing back to probably the rumor that these mariners would have heard of the great Yahweh who split the Red Sea, who delivered the people of Israel from, from Pharaoh, this Hebrew, this is a Hebrew, and then Jonah tells them, the God of heaven, I, I worship this God, the God of heaven and, and the God who made the sea and, and the God of the dry land. And the, the, the captain, upon hearing this, imagine, he's looking at the sky And he sees the radical wind, the radical rain. 
He's looking at the ocean as it goes up and down, and he's looking in hopes to see some kind of dry land to get to it. And Jonah tells them, the God I serve, there's no realm that he doesn't oversee. He oversees all of your gods. He's the God of the heaven. He's the God of the sea. He's the God of the land. And the, the captain, I think, asks a very good question. What have you done? Who runs from the God of the sea on the sea? This is a new kind of stupidity. What is happening? And Jonah shares with them, let's, let's be really clear about something. This is not repentance on Jonah's part. This is not Jonah doing a good job as an evangelist. He's not sharing, I am a Hebrew who worships the God of the heaven and the sea and the land. He's not trying to evangelize to them. He's now moved further into his descent, which is a complete open disobedience. He no longer is just at peace at it. He can actually declare, I'm running from the presence of God and I worship God. This is who I am. This is what I'm doing and I'm okay with it. I love God, and I'm also okay with my lifestyle I'm living right now. But also note, again, as we see a descent of Jonah, falling farther and farther away from the presence of God, the knowledge of God, furthering his justification of sin and disobedience and defiance towards God, we see this ironic ascent of the sailors who were once at an ignorant fear. Jonah shares with them who they are. The word fear is mentioned again for these sailors. Verse 10, then the men were exceedingly afraid. They had moved from an ignorant fear to an informed fear. They are progressing in their journey toward salvation. They did not know who caused the storm. Now they know. They're learning something about Yahweh. They're learning about God. Not on purpose, of course. Jonah isn't trying to teach them anything. He's just simply letting them know, I'm okay with what I'm doing. I want to thank Brad Beers for this quote he read last week by J.I. Packer, which I thought was super fitting for this particular point. J.I. Packer says, Knowing about God is crucially important for the living of our lives. As it would be cruel to an Amazonian tribesman to fly to London to put him down without explanation in the Trafalgar Square. Now, I said that wrong in the first service. Did I say it right in this one? Trafalgar. The Trafalgar Square. And leave him as one who knew nothing of English or England to fend for himself. So we are cruel to ourselves if we try to live in this world without knowing about God, about the God whose world it is and who runs it. The world becomes strange, mad, painful place. And life in it, a disappointing and unpleasant busyness for those who do not know about God. Disregard the study of God, you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life blindfolded, as it were, with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you. This way you can waste your life and lose your soul. I think it's good. J.I. Packer's point is the same point for the mariners, to to know the purpose of life, to know life's exceeding joy, and, and to experience the goodness that God has to offer, one must continually learn about who God is. And these men are now becoming more and more informed. But Jonah, poor Jonah, verse 12, upon hearing this, he said to them, you imagine this conversation? 
pick me up, chuck me overboard. Jonah's disobedience has gotten to a place where he's not, no longer thinking of the ordained, trained, no longer and just an active rebellion, no longer at a peace, no longer just open in his rebellion. Now it's a complete defiance. I would rather die. There's a part of me that is emotional as I think about this, to think that, that Jonah was once in a place where he heard God. He sat with him. And then he had the great privilege to carry the burden of God's word to his people in hopes to see people's lives changed towards goodness. He was once that man, and now he's at a place where he is so defiant in his rebellion, he would rather die than obey. Some of us in this room, we know people who have gone through that unfortunate, depressing, and sad journey. This gives us great distress, I think, in one regard to feel sorry for Jonah, but it should also be a tremendous warning to the church. Don't ever think that you are above this kind of defiance. Don't ever think that you are above a, a, a small, slow trickle downward into the depths of despair and disobedience. None of us are that far from it. All it takes is one small little turn, one little taste of sin, and then another taste of sin, another taste of sin. And then you get to a place where I've heard so many people say in counseling, I have no idea how I got here. Jonah's journey, downward. They keep, he keeps going down. But then, in this steady descent of Jonah, we have a continual steady ascent of the sailors. Verse 14. After they throw him, First of all, note that they, they're in the moral dilemma. They try to row towards land, but they can't. And as the sea continues to go more tempestuous against them, verse 14, before throwing Jonah overboard, they come to this place. They called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, for you have done as it has pleased you. Do you see the sovereignty of God in that sentence? That's sovereignty. You have done as it has pleased you. There's only one who can ultimately do that, and that is God himself. And then it says, verse 15, So they picked up Jonah, hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then, third time the word fear is mentioned, verse 16, Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered sacrifices to the Lord and made vows. They went from an uninformed fear to an informed fear to a worshipful fear. Isn't that the journey we desire to see salvation in people, to move from a place I do not know to a place of learning and growing to a place when they actually stand in a room like ours with their hands surrendered up high? I think it's interesting to note here, these men came to God in spite of Jonah. Isn't it amazing to think that even if you stink at your evangelism, and even if you stink at really being obedient to the Lord, God will still save people. Thank you, Lord. Isn't that relieving? It's Father's Day. Dad, isn't it good news to know you are not in charge of your child's salvation? 
That was more full of gusto than I thought it would be. <laughs> it's a blessing to know. This is why as parents we can go to our children and we can say things like this. Son, daughter, I love you. I desire to discipline you well so you'll know right from wrong. I desire to show you great forgiveness and great grace, but know this as a father, I am completely imperfect to ever satisfy you or fill all of your needs. And like you, I'm a child. And I need the saving grace and the parenthood of God himself as well. See, the message of Jonah is a message that all of us are children. All of us are in need of parenting. This is why sovereignty is hard for us. Because it's understanding that you have to admit that you're a child and that you don't always know what you don't know. See, my children, I, I guarantee you, my children would eat pizza every day, every meal, if I let them. And at some point, when I come to my child and I say, you can no longer eat pizza, and they look at me and ask, how in the world would you, why in the world would you withhold such goodness from me? Pizza's good. As all the dads in the room are holding their Snickers bars, <laughs> Snickers are good. It's even better for breakfast. And we've come to that place in our own culture. We, you can't eat junk food in the morning, and yet, yet this morning, my children, for Father's Day, they made me peanut butter and chocolate chip pancakes with syrup. <laughs> Is that really any different than eating a candy bar for breakfast? <laughs> Probably worse. And yet we call it a breakfast pancake. We know that these things aren't completely healthy for our children, and our children don't know because they don't have our perspective. Right? If you're dad, your mom, you've been a parent long enough, you know certain things that they don't know. So when you teach them about human sexuality, they, they don't fully know that you actually have a knowledge about that, that that they don't know. But how could you withhold that kind of stuff from me? When you tell them it's not good to play video games all day long, or you tell them not to be on social media all that much, and all of these different things that we try to teach them and discipline them and guide them in and, and, and give, them, give them direction, and they don't know because they don't know. Uh, friends, isn't this true for us? We have to come to the place in God's sovereignty as children that things happen in our lives that we don't understand. Storms occur, bad things occur, and we have to come to the place in God's sovereignty. You are the father, I am the child, and I don't know what I don't know. And all of us who are parents, you know that there is no greater blessing. There's nothing more beautiful than when you tell your child to do something and they say this. Yes, Dad. (laughs) Who are you? I mean, there's something precious about it. Our one-and-a-half-year-old, he's really the only one who does it with perfection. And he's barely, you know, he's one, he's one and a half. He just barely speaks. He, David, pick that up and put it in the trash. He goes, okay, I put trash. And he'll go and actually put it in the trash. But this is what it must have felt like to see Jesus walk on water. And I believe that to God, there is nothing more beautiful than for him to look at his children and simply say, yes, Dad. I honor you as my father. Another takeaway I think is interesting here is everyone in this book, everyone in this book eventually responds to God. Isn't it reminiscent of what the Bible says that one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. Everyone will eventually respond to God. Everyone responds to God here. But I think what's beautiful is this. If this is what God can accomplish, one of the greatest revival stories in all of the world, if this is what God can accomplish through disobedience, imagine what he can do through obedience. 
If God can love you and bring you to himself and use you to bring others to himself through your lack of obedience, imagine, church, what we would look like if we were obedient with worshipful, grateful hearts, minds, and souls. Use me, God. Send me to Nineveh. Don't let me say no to you. Let everything that I do be a yes to you, Lord. Yes, God. Yes, God. Send me, God. Use me, God. Imagine what the Tahoe Basin would look like with just 20 of us living that way. Can I close with some questions? Some of them have been repeated through the weeks. Where is God calling you to be obedient? What sins in your life need to die? Is it time for you to choose this morning to start mortifying a particular sin? Where do you need to seek forgiveness from God and from others? What thing is God calling you to give up? What thing is God calling you to give away? What thing is God calling you to do? Are you running in the opposite direction? Are you saying yes? What's beautiful about the Holy Spirit is I, I don't know the answer for any of those things for you. Some of you have shared with me certain things in your life, certain struggles. Some of you have even asked for counsel, maybe just for prayer. I know of some of those things. But by and large, even in the first service, I don't know. But you know what I do know? I know that when I ask those questions, everyone's got something that God is saying to you. That's the Spirit of God working through the Word of God to move you closer into the presence of God. At the end of my life, I want it to be said, Jesse drove violently into the presence of Jesus Christ. Jesse was never content with the current relationship he has with God. He wanted to know more. He desired to know more. And he wanted others to live the same kind of passion. Jesus turned water into wine. Jesus walked on the water, and we even see in the Gospels, Jesus calmed the storm. What do you need to know? Whenever your defiance meets God's sovereignty, your defiance will always lose. Stop running from God. Stop. Today, stop. Just stop. Turn around. Leave Tarshish behind. And get your butt back into the presence of God. Let's pray. Lord, the words fleeing your presence haunts me. It brings fear to my mind and my heart to think that I could try to attempt to run from being with you. 
Lord, as I have prayed so many times before, would you do everything in your power, Lord, to keep me in your presence? Lord, may we as a church also submit to you that we would not run from your presence, that we would sit with you, that you would use us, Lord. May we not be like Jonah, slowly descending away from the presence of God. May we actually follow the ones we're not even supposed to necessarily follow in this book, Lord, the sailors ascending from an ignorant fear to an informed fear to a submissive kind of worshipful fear. May we call out to you, and maybe even this morning, maybe we can do as exactly as the men did. We can offer our living sacrifice to you, and we can make vows to you, Lord. Promises that we will run to you, not away from you. Promises that we will be obedient to you. We ultimately know that we are powerless to do these things on our own. We thank you for the contrast of Jesus Christ who was obedient to the point of death as opposed to being willing to die and be disobedient. Lord, thank you for Jesus who is the only one who lived a perfect life on our behalf. The only one, Lord, who who did it right and did it well. Thank you that he is the reminder that none of us will ever do these things perfectly. Thank you also that it's a promise to us that we have access to you, that we can approach you boldly and firmly. We trust you, Lord, to do a work in us and to do a work through us. Bless your name. In Jesus' name, amen.